listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Hello, hello, everybody. This is Sarah McKenzie, and you've got episode 130 of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. I am really excited to share today's interview with you because I got to have a conversation with Megan Cox Gurdon. She's a mother of five. She's been the Wall Street Journal's children's book reviewer since 2005. So she's been writing weekly columns about children's books for 13 years. She's the author of the new book this year. It just came out, The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in an Age of Distraction. So of course, you knew I was going to have to interview her, right? I'll tell you what, this book was on my radar and Megan's work has been on my radar for a while. But Courtney, our community director here at Read Aloud Revival, read the book first and she told me, Sarah, you just got to read it, like drop everything and read it. I just took four pages of notes. So I did. And indeed, I took a lot of notes too and used a lot of book darts, underlined a whole lot of passages. And I was really looking forward to this conversation with her. So I'm glad she's joining us today. Before we get going with the episode, I'm going to be answering a listener question. My name is Melanie and I am from Newburgh, Indiana. My question is regarding summer and reading. I'm a creature of habit and so in the fall and winter, I feel like I do a great job setting aside time to read with my kids, but the summertime poses quite the challenge with vacations and just a more lax schedule. I often find it difficult to make time for it. Do you have any tips or suggestions to continue reading throughout the summer? Also, any good audiobooks for the preschool crowd? My kids are five and three, and that would be great. Thank you. Hey, Melanie, that is a great question because I bet a lot of us are feeling the same way. Whenever we slip out of our normal routines, important things that happen most days during the school year, like reading aloud, can kind of slip off our radar. So the first thing I want to tell you is to give yourself lots of grace. There's going to be times you're on vacation or you have family visiting or something pops up and you just don't get your reading time in. Remember, this shouldn't be a burden. Your reading aloud is really a connection point for your family. So just the fact that you're asking the question and you want to be committed to making sure your family does some reading aloud this summer means you're on the right track. So don't be too hard on yourself on those days when it doesn't happen. That said, I think you can ask yourself, what do we do all together every day? Maybe it's breakfast. My family doesn't actually all eat breakfast at the same time, so that's not a good solution for me. Ours is dinner, probably, because we do usually eat dinner all together. So find a time of day when, for the most part, you're already all together, and then just peg your reading aloud onto that time. So I could say, okay, for the most part, we have dinner together every day. So I'm going to, before anyone's excused from the table, read aloud for 15 minutes before they leave the dinner table. As you know, probably already, that if you say, I'm just going to read aloud for 10 minutes or for 15 minutes, oftentimes that's just enough to get you going. And so you keep reading even longer after that. But saying it's only 15 minutes kind of gets us over that initial hurdle of, oh, I don't have time for this. So if it's breakfast, it can be reading aloud while everyone's eating breakfast. And a lot of times doing it at the beginning of the day is a great way to go about it because you know you've gotten to the most important things first. And reading aloud is just a fantastic way to start the day. Don't forget, of course, audiobooks, which are fantastic for road trips, which, by the way, you asked about audiobooks. Audiobooks for preschoolers. So let me tell you a couple of my favorites for the preschool set. I love the House at Pooh Corner and Winnie the Pooh books read by Peter Dennis. 
The Frog and Toad books by Arnold Lobel are wonderful on audio, and they are written and read by Arnold Lobel himself. There's multiple books there, Frog and Toad are Friends, Frog and Toad All Year, Frog and Toad Together. And it doesn't matter how many times you've read those books, the audiobooks still delight. So that's another really wonderful um, one for preschoolers. Let's see. Princess Cora and the Crocodile, which is written by Laura Amy Schlitz and illustrated by Brian Floca. That is a great audiobook. It's about 40 minutes long, so it's kind of perfect for a little quiet time or downtime. It's funny, really well done on audio. And then there are several books in the Rabbit Ears audiobook series that are wonderful for preschoolers. For example, The Tale of Mr. Jeremy Fisher by Beatrix Potter is read aloud by Meryl Streep for Rabbit Ears Audio. She's a wonderful narrator, so that's a really good one. There's also The Velveteen Rabbit, also read by Meryl Streep. There's Rudyard Kipling's animal tales, like How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin. That one's narrated by Jack Nicholson. So what I love about the Rabbit Ears audiobooks is that they're really well done. There's usually good music tied in with the story, and they're read by famous actors and actresses. So they're they're just really a delight to listen to. Anyway, what I'm going to do is put several of those in the show notes for you. You can also go to readaloudrevival.com slash audible deals, and you'll see all of the current audible deals on audiobooks, and you can always grab them just one off. You don't have to have an Audible subscription to get a good deal on those Audible books. So if you go to readaloudrevival.com slash Audible deals, and you can even search there by age. So find your kids' ages and see which Audible deals we are recommending now for your kids. Thanks so much for your question, Melanie. Hey, if you have a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming episode of the podcast, go to readaloudrevival.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you'll see a button that says, Leave a message for Sarah McKenzie. I'm so glad you're joining us today, Megan. Welcome to the Read Aloud Revival. Oh, Sarah, I am thrilled to be talking to you. I'm a great admirer, and I, I think your mission is wonderful. And um, it's fantastic to be in the, you know, in the company of a fellow zealot. A fellow zealot, indeed. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about your family before we get going? Yeah, I'd love to. So my husband and I have five children. They range in age from 13, a girl, to 24, another girl. I have four daughters and one son. And you've been a book reviewer for the Wall Street Journal for, well, let's see, since 2005. I started writing, yeah, right before my youngest daughter was born, I started doing the uh, column. And when, when they started a, um, a new weekend section, and they were interested in having children's books represented, which is kind of interesting. And I, I lucked into it, really, because I had written a lot for the journal over the years. I'd written a lot of journalism over the years. And I had been writing reviews for the books pages. And when this came up, it was I was maybe in some ways a, the obvious pick for them, given that I had an in-house you know, focus group. <laughs> yes. Well, I love The Enchanted Hour so much. And we're really going to dig in here because I filled my book with book darts and notes and underlines. One of the first things that just jumped out at me, it took place in your chapter called The Rich Rewards of a Vast Vocabulary. And we've talked before on the podcast about how a good, solid vocabulary, a rich vocabulary is an excellent predictor of future academic success. I love how in the book you discuss reading the story of Babar. I expect this is a book many of our listeners are familiar with. And you spend a couple of pages just 
helping us see the visual riches that happen on the pages visually as we're looking at a, you know, a Babar book. And then on page 93, you say this, you say, everything I've just described appears in the pictures, add the text, and the listening child will hear all sorts of other interesting and unusual words, fond, satisfied, elegant, learned, becoming, progress, marabou bird, scold, promises, calamity, funeral, quavering, proposal, splendid, dromedary, au revoir, honeymoon, and a gorgeous yellow balloon. It takes just under seven minutes to read the 46 pages of the story of Babar out loud, if you don't linger for quizzes. In that time, a child will have vicarious emotional experiences. He will see tenderness and catastrophe, fear and comfort, pride and anger, death, marriage, sorrow and joy. Such a profusion of image and word and concept. And if you've set aside an hour for reading, you still have 53 minutes left. Think of the language riches a child will acquire if this happens every day, starting when he is tiny. His mind will become a horde of glimmering, glinting, gem-studded things. Oh, that sounds lovely when you read it. <laughs> Makes me want to drop everything and just go read a picture book with my kids. Oh, that's, well, my work is done. No, I, 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 I mean, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that, actually writing about that, because I think this is one of the things that we can easily you know, in life, it's very easy to overlook the things that are around us. And even when we love picture books and we love reading with children, you know, it's easy to overlook just how rich and profound and deep the experience is. And in that passage, you alluded to quizzes. That, of course, is our family term for the kind of interaction, the sort of informal interaction that you would have, right, with a small child in a picture book. So you're, you're looking at the book, you're reading the words to the child, you might stop and say, well, then where's the bunny? Or who can find the, in the case of Babar, who can find the andirons or the, you know, the spats or some other kind of esoteric thing that's in the pictures, you know, as a way of kind of playing with the book, almost as a kind of, you know, a literary toy as you're mm -hmm. going. So you're, you're reading the story, you're interacting with the pictures. And in the pictures, there is, yeah, so much. I mean, it was the brilliant, the brilliant thing about those de Brunhoff books, especially the early ones was how much detail went into every picture and how, you know, comparatively unusual many of the things depicted are or, or were. Yes, because I think especially for those of us who are in the habit of reading aloud, even those of us who are doing it on a regular basis is what I'm trying to say. It almost seems too simple. We almost, I mean, because it's something you just can pull a child's free, right? You <laughs> pull a child onto your lap and crack open a book and just read the words and then start pointing at the pictures and asking their child what they see. That just seems so simple. But when I read your description, a couple pages long of what's actually happening when you pull open a spread like the bar, it's, it's a little bit jaw dropping. I mean, it, it's absolutely true. It is one of the most, well, as we're speaking to the choir here, singing from the same hymn sheet, but it is really one of the most consequential and beautiful and nourishing things we can do. You know, it's absolutely free. The list of good effects of reading aloud are, is almost without end. So let's talk about that phenomenon where kids want to be read a book again and again and again and again. <laughs> because, I mean, in our house, sometimes it'll go by season. I was just telling someone last summer was, or no, last winter was the winter of Fritz and the Beautiful Horses by Jan Brett. I read that book so many times I could probably recite the whole thing in my sleep. <laughs> but you say in your book, let's see, I'm flipping to page 100. When a child asks for the same story again, again, he is telling us something important that we may never find out what that important thing is. The book may be helping him perform quiet interior work, 
having to do with fear or sadness that he can't articulate. The book may be an old friend whose familiarity feels comforting at bedtime. The reason I loved that so much is because it reminded me that we can't always know what's happening inside the mind or soul or heart of our child, but we can trust that when we're sitting there reading with our kids, something is happening there. And sometimes it may be a lot more substantial or formative than we even realize, especially when it's a book they want to hear over and over. So I wonder if you could talk a little more about this important act we do as parents when we reread. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's really, if you look at the face of a child who is transported by a book, there is a kind of stillness, right? There's a transport. You can see that the eyes may be uh, focused on the middle distance, or sometimes I've looked up and seen my children looking at my face, but not as if they're really looking at me. It's more like I'm the portal or something. And so, yeah, so as, as you say, there is this, you know, we, we can't know what goes on inside them. But with the, with reading books again and again, we have, I mean, there is some research now to tell us that in addition to these maybe more sort of gauzy and abstract ideas of what's going on inside a child, there are some important mechanisms of learning that are taking place. There was some research done in, in England at the University of Sussex, and researchers there snuck in sort of odd made-up words, and they smuggled them into text, into children's stories that they had confected for the purpose. So in along with regular, you know, recognizable English terms were some other ones called, like there was something called a sprock and something called a tannin. And what they did was they they read these books over and over to children to see what children would make of it. And the again and again phenomenon seemed to confirm what they had suspected, which is that every time a child hears a story read again, they understand more of it. It's just making more sense. The language is making sense to them. The syntax is making more sense. It's as though they're consolidating their understanding through these again, again books. So I think that there, you know, there are a number of things happening, right? There's definitely an emotional connection. You see the old friend, a book that was very popular in our family was a book called Piper about a little dog who is, uh, who's taken in by an old woman and he's beaten and runs away from a wicked man. And then he, he, he's taken in by an old woman. And the, when the wicked man tries to come back, the old woman doesn't give the dog up. And it's just this, you know, it's beautifully illustrated by, I think it's Emma Chichester Clark. She may have written it as well. That was an again, again book. And so clearly emotional content for sure. But I am quite certain that as well, they were really wanting to master the language content. about this term dialogic reading that comes up quite a bit in your book. And I think you might have touched on it already, but tell us what dialogic reading is and why it matters. Yeah. So dialogic reading is what I was referring to before in our family, we call it quizzes. And that is, that's exactly that. It's, a, it's, it's having a dialogue, as it were, fomented by contact with the book, you know, dialogue with your child, dialogue with the book, dialogue even with the pictures in the book. So these are the impromptu kind of conversations and inquiries that you might have that books bring about. And this is very important. You know, I'm sure you've talked a lot on the podcast about the word gap, right? There are children who grow up in households where there may not be a lot of conversation, certainly not a lot of conversation directed to the children. There may not be a lot of books and there may not be book reading. Mm -hmm. And, you know, children who grow up this way in the early years in particular are at a really profound disadvantage when they get to school in all kinds of ways. And it's very difficult to overcome that disadvantage. I mean, it's a comparative disadvantage, right? So it means that the child who has never had stories read to him or her, you know, simply hasn't had that fortification that a child, yeah. you know, a read aloud family has given that child. 
And there are, you know, we can see that there are uh, long-term effects that are really, um, really unfair. And it's a shame, right, that this is the case. And dialogic reading is one of the greatest ways to, you know, to encourage, um, it's a great way as a parent to practice, you know, conversation with your child and also just to kind of, you know, elicit conversation from them and help them use the words that, you know, you're hoping that they're learning just in the process of becoming, you know, a civilized human being. And it's also a wonderful way, it's, you know, very helpful for parents who, let's say they are shy or they're not confident about their reading skills, because this is a real issue, right? I mean, some, not all parents find it easy to read aloud. Not all children find it easy to sit for a read aloud. I mean, there are difficulties that people encounter. And so one of the, I, one of the things I love about quizzes or dialogic reading is that it, in a way, there's a kind of demystifying process with the book. We're talking about picture books here, of course, right? But that the book can be a, a plaything, and it's a it's an entry point to conversation as much as it is, you know, a story and a series of of illustrations that both parent and child would take in. So, dialogic reading, it, you know, it's something it generally fades out after you move past the picture book phase, but it's immensely productive in those early years. And you know, it's little, it's really little things. It's like it's like you know, good night moon, a good night cow jumping over the moon. Wait, where's the cow? Look at the cow. He's over the moon. He's in a picture on the wall. Wait, what else is on? You know, you, yes. you have questions. This. So again, it's this wonderful kind of back and forth. And dialogic reading, of course, is the, you know, the pedagogical term for it. And our term, as I said, was, was quizzes. My children always love to have, they love to compete to find things in the pictures. <laughs> as siblings will, of course, compete over anything at some point, right? <laughs> Silence is also very powerful. Sometimes during dialogic reading or during picture book reading, just stopping, right? And just pausing and looking at the page or maybe pointing mutely to something in the illustrations. You know, that's a kind of dialogue too. I mean, there, and, and sometimes, you know, a moment of quiet, let's say it's a story that has, uh, you know, some drama or sadness in it. You know, not just hurrying through the pages, but pausing and just sitting with what you see for a little while. You know, sometimes that brings interesting things out of children that gives them a moment to process what they're seeing and and, you know, comment on it. I mean, that's, and it's all beautiful stuff. It's all grist for the great mill. Have you seen, that just reminds me of a picture book I've just loved this last year, which is The Rough Patch by Brian Lees. Oh, The Rough Patch. Oh, I love that book. Yes. And that's a good, I mean, as you are talking about slowing down and being quiet, there's a few pages on there that I remember. Um, the silence actually spoke quite a bit of volume, I think, you know, like there was a lot going on there in the silence of the of the pages. Yeah. And the illustrations, as I recall, yeah, this is uh, for your readers or readers, sorry, your listeners who don't know the book. It's the rough patch is is the rough patch that a, a fox actually goes through when his pet dog dies. And the two of them had really enjoyed gardening together. I mean, of course, you know, the fox is a stand in for a human being. And and when the dog dies, the, the fox is so distraught and desolate that he ruins his garden and lets it, you know, cuts things and violently, you know, cuts down beautiful things. And, and then the pages go, if you remember, kind of dark. And, and so there's a, there's a visual silence as well of that depth of grief, you know, and then he comes out of the rough patch and then there's love again. And we had, um, oh, Sarah, privately in our family, I say privately, here it is for the world to know, but, you know, we had, we had a lot going on this, the beginning of this year, we had my daughter getting married, our daughter getting married, my book coming out and our beloved dog died. Oh, and, yeah. And I picked that book up the other day and I, it, I was, I, I couldn't open it, you know, it was yeah. too much. Oh, so yeah. So these, I mean, a picture book is a portal to the human heart. Yes. 
Yes. And actually, I will just mention here, since we were talking about the rough patch, that we do have a list of books that are especially helpful portals to the heart when you have are experiencing loss or grief. And so we'll make sure that that link uh, to that list of our favorite picture books for loss and grief, those times when we don't ever want them, but sometimes you need them. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I love how in your book, you don't minimize the amount of effort it takes to read to our kids, especially as they grow. I mean, it really is countercultural, I think, to take a half an hour, even 20 minutes and read with our kids, especially when they're old enough to read to themselves. I know in your book, you say making the time to read together is almost an obstinate act of love. And I just love that because I really think, yes, reading aloud is it's an act of love. Oh, oh, for sure it is. And it is a sacrifice of time. And it's, you know, it can be difficult. I mean, I, I write about this in the introduction, of course, referring back to the earlier days. But, you know, when my children were young, and you're, you're of course, still in those trenches, you know, getting mm-hmm. to the read aloud at night sometimes felt like almost an insurmountable task. Like how it's, it's, it's madness and it's dinner and it's bath time and it's everything. And then you just, but I, you know, we, I made it absolutely something that was never to be missed. I mean, it was the one thing, it was like flossing your teeth. Like it was the thing we absolutely always did, even if it was really late or even if we could only do it for a little while. And invariably, I mean, without exception, you'd kind of fight your way through the kind of furious waves of the day. And then, oh, when you got to the read aloud, it was actually, that was, that's when I would think, wait, this is what I should have been doing all day long. This is the stuff. This is the way to live. This is the reward. You know, and it was, I mean, I liken it to a, to a life raft. It was, you know, the, the turbulent waters of, you know, childhood, you could, you could pull up out of that turbulence and just rest together in this place of mutual encounter. It is, it is a sacrifice. It is a, you know, it, it is a discipline, but you know what, what, what worthwhile thing does not require some effort, you know? That's right. I also like that in your book, you consider the question of whether reading aloud to someone is like a form of cheating, right? Or infantilizing them. And I like how you say that the difference between reading the words on the page for yourself or having someone read them to you is much like the difference between walking and running. You wrote, both walking and running are good ways to reach a destination. Is it babyish to walk, (laughs) which takes longer but requires less effort? Is it more mature to run, (laughs) expending more energy and arriving sooner? And I just, I remember laughing out loud when I read that the first time because I thought, yes, that's exactly right. We have this tendency to think if they can get it for themselves and get it faster, that's better. <laughs> we have a, we have a false idea of reading aloud versus reading with the eyes, I think, or, or there's, or, there's this is the sort of almost a hierarchy of goods, right? And we, th- there's the assumption that reading with your eyes, decoding graphic symbols with your eyes and processing what you're reading in your brain is in some ways superior to taking it in through your ears, you know, reading by listening. And I think this is unduly limiting. And, you know, honestly, you could even argue that listening to a story is not only more natural, but is almost more human than, you know, taking in a story through your eyes. Because because speech, what we process, which is how we, of course, process storytelling, which is someone reading aloud to us, speech is our natural language. It's our, it's the way that all human beings, you know, take in, uh, well, apart from those who can't hear, that's a different set, story. But those of us who can hear, right? That's that's how we learn language. We learn from hearing right. and, and speaking. So it's very natural. It's very easy for us. And, you know, slightly off this topic, but in a related sense, you know, one of the really beautiful things about reading aloud to a mixed group of people, and it might be a mixed classroom, it might be a group of children of different ages or of different abilities, is when we read aloud to them, 
we bring a story within reach of those who are competent readers and those who are, you know, struggling readers. And they get it at the same time and with the same, you know, with the same ease. Because again, you know, speech is natural to us. And I, I love that. It's like, it's like reading aloud is this, oh, well, it, it's a gift. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats, to use an economic argument. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> you know? right. There is a spot on page 134 and 135 of your book that I have starred and underlined and put arrows to. So I'm just going to read it aloud. <laughs> this really goes. So one of the questions we hear a lot at Read Aloud Revival is, am I reading aloud? Is it possible for me to read aloud to my kids too much, especially homeschooling parents who say that their kids, their teenagers sometimes want them to read aloud their assignments to them because they're struggling with them. And this is what you wrote. You wrote, knowing what I do now. I wouldn't hesitate to read a school assignment out loud if one of my children were having trouble with it. I wish we could go back in time and recoup the miserable hours that Phoebe spent wrestling with Johnny Tremaine in the summer before fifth grade. It seems obvious to me now that the language and ideas were pitched a bit too far ahead of her. She couldn't read the novel with ease, so she couldn't read it with enjoyment. If I had brought it to life for her by reading it aloud, she might have relished spending time in revolutionary Boston with poor mangled Johnny and the rebellious Sons of Liberty. Rather than grinding through an ordeal that left her hating the author, Esther Forbes, she might have been able to appreciate the book's force and sentiment and beauty. And isn't that the point? I mean, what else is the purpose of reading literature? <laughs> I'm glad you like that. I, I mean, I do. I do wish I could go back. That poor child, you know, it was like, it was like the child at the dinner table left to try and eat, you know, the asparagus or whatever. Repulsive <laughs> yes. <it is. laughs> yes. Force feeding never, you know, or compelling people never, never endears something to them. You know, that's the trouble. Well, and maybe that is part of the power of reading aloud is that it is this invitation into here, come sit next to me, let's do this together, or let's dive in together rather than here, go read this. It feels a lot more like being handed a plate of vegetables, especially if it's hard, you know, which a lot of the classics are. Right. And well, also to go back to the point that you were raising earlier, you know, is there really, is it really so wrong to read aloud? Is it really so wrong to take in a book through the ears than, you know, than through the eyes? Is it worse? Is it infantilizing? You know, absolutely not. In the course of my research, I interviewed a wonderful guy uh, named Matthew Rubery, who has written a book called the, the Untold History of the Talking Book. And it's a, it's a history of audiobooks. And he was, he was drawn into the subject because he was very interested when a friend of his father's, so a, a gentleman older than him or older than he, sheepishly confessed to having read, quote unquote, a book on audio tape. And Matthew Rubery thought, oh, that's interesting. Why, would you, why do we feel apologetic when we listen? Like, what is that about? And so, you know, he looked into it. And one of the interesting things he found was that, you know, we neurologists say, you know, we do, you know, we do have to train the brain to read. And that's true if we're reading, you know, in regular English prose. It's true if we're reading Braille or whatever. Understanding speech is very natural. You don't have to train the brain to understand speech. But one of the things, interestingly, that he found is that when people do this kind of dual reading, which I actually at the beginning mentioned to you, I had been reading a novel both on audiobook. And simultaneously reading it that way, and then at other times in the day reading it on paper, the human brain does not seem to remember how it got the information. So, you know, what he concluded from this was that basically, since we can't remember, we, we remember the story, we remember, remember the characters and the language, but the fact that we don't remember or distinguish between what we've read on the page and what we've heard through our ears tells us that, you know, one way or another, our brain is reading and it's fine to listen. Yeah. So then I guess the question is, you know, as parents, when we're thinking about a particular 
book or assignment or something with our kids, if the goal is to get the information into our child or if the goal is to share this story with our child, then it doesn't matter if they're be reading it through their eyes or their ears. If the goal is to help them become better readers with their eyes, then reading with their eyes <laughs> makes sense. But I mean, if we kind of step back, for the most part, what we want is usually for the thing that's been written to get into our child, right? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Okay, so can we talk about problematic books? Because this is something a lot of us are wrestling with. Little House on the Prairie, for example, beloved, I would imagine, by the majority of the listeners to this podcast, myself included. And yet, I think for a lot of us, we struggle with some of the racial prejudices our kids encounter in those books and others like them, Caddy Woodlawn and others similar. So I, first of all, I want to read a little snippet of what you've written about that book in particular. So for anyone following along at home in the Enchanted Hour, this is from page 173. Megan, you wrote, we can read our children Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House in the Big Woods, and then we can read them Louise Edrich's The Birchbark House and let them see, let the authors show them at once how similar life is when you are a little girl with annoying siblings who lives close to the land and must engage in yucky, tiresome chores, and how different westward expansion appeared depending on the type of house and society you occupied. The solution to problematic passages in any particular book is not fewer books, but more of them. No single book has to scratch every itch. If the problem is that some literature expresses old-fashioned views, the solution is to read our children more books of every kind. The more reading, the more voices. The more voices, the more imagination. The more imagination, the more opinions. The more opinions, the more freedom of thought. And the more children engage in freedom of thought, the better. You know, if, I mean, children are going to encounter problematic things in the world, right? I mean, we live in a world that's on uh, trigger, you know, is trigger happy for problematic subjects. You know, where better than at home to talk about these things, right? And, that's right. And one of the things I want to say in defense of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, which I do, I absolutely love. I think they give us a priceless, irreplaceable look at, a, at, at, at whole worlds of ways of thinking of the past um, and also ways of doing things. You know, we often joke that, you know, if, if ever there were the zombie apocalypse, we would grab those books and take them with us because those books tell you how to do everything. You can learn to farm and butcher and build things. From what to do books. with a pig bladder? <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is obviously inflate it and play with your sister and knock it back. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, but but you know, I think that um, I think that Laura Ingalls Wilder actually served her purpose very well in those books, and I think that she has done a disservice by being treated as a problematic author in this regard. You know, as a child reading those books, I was left in no doubt as to the sort of retrograde quality of, say, her mother's opinions about Indians. You know, I was almost embarrassed for Ma when I was a child because clearly she had a sort of bigoted view. And at the same time, as a child, I was unable to understand that there were perfectly good reasons for her to hold the views that she did. I didn't, you know, I didn't endorse them. But I think, you know, I think Laura Ingalls Wilder is a wonderful, she and her daughter who worked with her on the books, they did a wonderful job of portraying the nuance of real life. You know, and and when we've come across those scenes, when I've read to my children, we, we you know, we talk about them. I mean, how, of course, Native American mothers and children at that time would have had a different view of the settlers coming to us. And so we do what we can to kind of, you know, to provide some insights on that. 
but it, 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 it's reasonable as well to explore the view of the settlers who were moving west. You know, what, it, it's part of our history. It's not we don't have to hide from it. We can try and understand it. What you say here is be not afraid. Let the stories flow. There are simple and sensible ways to convey optimism and open heartedness while acknowledging the limitations as we regard them of people who've gone before us. And then a little later, you say you say the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Children can understand this. And I thought, oh, my goodness, yes, this really comes back to, I think, giving our kids a lot of credit for being able to read about hard things or circumstances and different ways and, and hard things and bad things that have happened in the past with a kind of sensibility that we are not giving them credit for when we want to shelter or protect them from it. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, look, the, on the sheltering question, right, everybody has to draw their line somewhere. But I don't think that we, you know, cultivating a climate of fear around books, especially classic books, is just wrong and short-sighted. And the idea that we as a civilization have reached the pinnacle of our development and have are so without any culpability or blame or flaws ourselves that we can stand on these lofty heights and say these all these books must all go and we you know have the one true truth of, of what is good literature you know wrong the future is going to judge us so let's be open minded and not be so quick to to paper over the past you know I think that one of the things that I really got from reading your book it reaffirmed my trust and faith in reading with our kids their books themselves end up becoming a gateway for conversation you've talked about this before about how when you're reading, like it stems from that dialogic reading you do with picture books in your kids. But as they get older, then you're reading books that, you know, may, maybe tackle hard things in history or hard truths about humanity. And I think it just kind of bursts, these doors burst open on conversations that might not come up any other way, right? But they end up being sort of a gateway to connect with our kids over these hard topics. Oh, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And yeah, to, to make the point again, I mean, where better to discuss these things than, you know, in the coziness of home? The book that has come up so much with my daughters in particular is The Hundred Dresses. I mean, it just came up the other day. My youngest daughter is in seventh grade. And she said, oh, my gosh, this is just like the scene at the end when the, the girl left her class because of bullying. And in the book, as you may remember, the um, Wanda Petronsky, the bullied Polish girl, leaves the class. Her, her father writes in broken English a letter to the teacher saying, you know, my daughter will not be treated cruelly in your class anymore. And, you know, these girls who'd been toying with her and playing with her and having fun at her expense, you know, you really saw how the, the, there was the deep feeling of, of one girl who'd known the bystander, right? The girl who'd known that what was going on was wrong and hadn't said anything. And, you know, it was just fascinating to see this same dynamic taking place in my daughter's class. And she was very aware of it. And in a way, you know, reading the book had prepared her for understanding what she was seeing. Mm. It made sense to her that, you know, the girls who had chiefly persecuted this particular child in her class kind of covered up for it. They didn't really want to take responsibility. Whereas others, including my daughter, who had, in fact, to, be, to her credit, stood up for this girl. But, you know, they had had the moral qualms about it. And they identified or she identified with with Maddie in the book, who is the girl, you know. I'm just very interesting how how these books can inform our real life over and over and over again. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a complete delight. Oh, Sarah, I would love talking with you and I would be happy to come back any day. And I look forward to listening to all the next 120 episodes. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. 
Hi, my name is Elijah Bashes. I am from PA, Pennsylvania, and my favorite book is Elijah Buxton because it has a lot of thrill-seeking adventure and a mystery that nobody else, can, that no one else can figure out until the end. I recommend this book for kids 10 and older. My name is Lacey. My favorite book is Fancy Nancy because I like fancy stuff. I'm five and I live in Glenallen, Alaska. My name is Olivia and I am from Alaska. My favorite book is Owls in the Family by Farley Moaz. And I like it because it was funny and it was good read aloud for our whole family. And I am eight. I am Aaron and I'm four and I like monkeys now jumping on the bed because it's so funny and I'm from Alaska. My name is Jacob and I live in Utah and I'm four years old and I love um, Bowser's thanks because all of his friends come. My name is Liesl. I live in Utah and I'm 12 years old. One of my favorite books that's been read aloud to me is Magic from the Septimus Heap series by Annie Sage. One thing I like about the book is the way they do their ghosts. I think it's a cool and interesting way. My name is Tannelin and I live in, live in Utah and I'm four years old. My favorite book is Rosie Walk and in Bow's Visitor because the chicken doesn't get hit, caught by the fox and the mouse walks past the bow. My name is Rachel Kelly and my favorite book is Sarah Witcher's Story. My favorite part is when, is when they find Sarah. Hello, my name is Amos. I'm six years old. I live in Mississippi and my favorite books are a Father's Dragon by Ruth Stiles Gannett and a Brownstone Family Family Vault Mythical Collection by Joe Todd Stanton and Edison The Mystery of the Missing Mouse Treasure by Torben Kuhlman. Thanks so much. Hey everybody, this is Gemma. Gemma, how old are you? Three. Where do you live? Mississippi. What are your favorite books? Dark um, Parade and Jasmine. This Jasmine. This Jasmine. Oh, thank you, kids, for your book recommendations. Thanks again to Megan Cox Gurdon for coming to the show. I just loved that conversation. Really enjoyed her book, The Enchanted Hour. We'll have a link to it along with all of the other book recommendations that Megan mentioned during the show at readaloudrevival.com slash 130. So if you missed any of those book recommendations, didn't catch titles, not sure where to find them, go to readaloudrevival.com slash 130. We also have complete transcripts from every episode of the podcast. So if you have a friend who you want to pass on the information from the episode to who maybe is hard of hearing or doesn't like listening to podcasts, you can send them the transcripts. And again, those are at the same place. So readaloudrevival.com slash 130.